Hello and welcome to the Double Double. My name is David Dixon and it's Saturday, January 2nd here in New York City. Hope everyone is doing well. They had a fun, uh, relaxing New Year's celebration. Obviously much, much different this year. Obviously in New York City, Times Square was empty pretty much this year instead of the usual packed people enjoying the freezing, freezing cold to watch a ball slowly, slowly be lowered to count down the start of the new year. So wanted to thank everyone who had listened to any of these episodes this entire 2020. It was a really difficult year for a lot of people. And, you know, if you chose to spend a little bit of your day, your week, your month, your year, listening to me talk about sports, interview coaches, talk with my friends about sports and whatever we were feeling in that moment. I uh, just want to say thank you. Uh, really, really means a lot. And uh, hopefully you're sticking around and uh, we're going to hopefully be able to have some some more really good content here in uh, 2021 and, and to keep things going. So we're going to start off the new year uh, with me and my good friend from uh, starting way back when we were in sixth grade. Uh, my good friend Matt Starr. We are just two New Yorkers talking about the Knicks, how much they have hurt us, how much they torture us, and just, you know, what it's like to be a Knicks fan and just this whole past decade of what being a Knicks fan was and hopefully what what this next decade will bring. And then uh, and then we hit on some more, just uh, more NBA stuff, especially with the Brooklyn Nets. So it's New Yorkers talking about... New York basketball. So I hope you guys all enjoy it. Uh, hit the music and come back with that conversation from earlier this week. Joining me now on the line from his undisclosed location and somewhere in, in the Northeast is my longtime friend, Civil servant to the great state of Maine. Well, I guess that gives it away. But and Bates College graduate Matthew Starr. Matt, how's it going? I I think civil servant is a matter of perspective. Uh, uh, some in this country would call me a member of the liberal deep state. Um, I, I don't know how much I'm serving. I'm doing my best. Um, but I, I can definitely say I am in Maine. Um, and even further, an undisclosed location in Portland, Maine. Um, I don't think that's giving too much information. Okay, okay. Well, so Portland, Maine is a, hypothetically, because I have never really been able to experience it, but, but from what I've heard, is a great food city. So, look, 2020, we're all can't really go anywhere. It's been a it's been a year of, of takeout and really making an emphasis to support local businesses. Are there any local businesses that you want to shout out in Portland that you've come to really appreciate this this year? So, um, I think there's one important distinction to make about me supporting um, local businesses in Portland. There is a difference between where I went when I was still living with my parents before I got a job um, and where I go now that I do have a job. Because before, um, I had a little bit of pocket money to spend, um, and I would do things with my family and my parents who have so very uh, earnestly um, worked for a comfortable living, right? Um, on my own, I'm broke as hell. So on my own, um, all I could 
all I can give credence to is like the local bookstore, um, Longfellow, um, and print a bookstore, um, right around the corner from where I live, both awesome locally run, uh, very thoughtfully curated spots. If we're talking with my parents, um, there are about eight different restaurants, um, that has stuck this pandemic out, um, pretty, I, I, I think pretty admirably, okay. uh, because doing winter dining in Maine is not easy, as no. you can imagine. No. Um, and then, and yeah. because, because the only restaurant I got to really experience in Maine was my freshman year. We went up and played at Bates, and we got to experience the Bates Dining Hall, which met all rumors and, and expectations. The the cereal wall was real. It was spectacular. And uh, I'm pumped to hear you say that you're shouting out local bookstores, you know, because the local bookstore by me, Books Are Magic, is a, is a great little local spot that has a tons of oh stuff. It's, it's where I do it's most cool. of Christmas shopping. I got some uh, stuff for my family this year. Is Court Street Books not not alive anymore? Yeah, so Book Court uh, closed, sadly, uh, several years ago. It was a huge, huge loss for the neighborhood because that's where I went in 2007 when I was nine and to get the last Harry Potter book. And, like, the line was around the corner starting at, like, 11.15 at night. It was crazy. It was awesome. Oh, my God. That's a tragedy. That, that place was awesome. Um Wow. So, but what's the name of this new place that you're going to? It's called Books Are Magic. So shout out for anyone who, you know, it's a little late for this because it's past the holiday season, but birthdays, you know, supporting local bookstores is always great. It's called Books Are Magic. It's a really fun little store. They also do great uh, author appearances. Shea Serrano was there last year. Uh, wow. So it's a, it's a great, great store. So pivoting to, you know, a big business. Uh some someone who is not known to really support the little guy is James Dolan and the, the New York Knicks. All so right, wait, 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 wait. First of all, first of all, I, I can't let that go without addressing it. That was an awesome segue. Um, I'm a professional. You, you, uh, look, you definitely improve working on your craft. Uh, that's all I can say. But anyway, keep going. Um, awesome segue. So, you know. During this year, it's been a really tough year for a lot of people, and a lot of bad things have happened. But one of the, I, in in my mind, nice uh, parts about the way that the NBA handled things, in from a sports way, was they didn't invite all the really bad teams down to the bubble, and the Knicks are one of those teams. And just from a pure competitiveness standpoint, the competition in the bubble was really, really high and really good because. When you eliminate the eight worst teams and just have the top 22 teams there, the games are really, really compelling and exciting. So we have not had Knicks basketball since March. And as my brother reminded me when they were starting their season, was like, you know, it's been about 300 days since the Knicks won a basketball game. I was like, it couldn't be 300 days. And then it's like, well, January and February, that's about, you know, 50 days and then the pandemic, it's like, well, yeah, it was probably about 300 days. So, so, so what has your life been like through those 300 days without Knicks basketball to really think about? All right. So do you want, uh, do you want this answer to be like centered around Knicks basketball or the lack thereof, or is this just like a summary overview of like life in quarantine? Just like, you know, 
next, you know, the next cause a lot of hope in many ways. And then also a lot of pain. It's, it's the, it's the great Charlie Brown when Lucy pulls the football. That's, that's what the, that's what the Knicks have been in our lifetime at, at least of really basketball watching starting like 2007, 2008, which is hope. And then we fall on our butt and then it's like, oh, we don't want to really believe anymore. But then Lucy tricks us into believing and then we fall over again. Okay. So, um, all right. So I, I, I have one point on the mix. Um, no more, no less. I was thinking about what I wanted to say when you told me we were going to talk about this. Um, and I thought about I, I thought about it for quite a while. I was like, what, what, what can I say on the Knicks? has not already been said ad nauseum. The New York's the New York sports media scene, if nothing else is thorough, right? Um, or oversaturated might be a better word. Um, so the Knicks as a franchise, as an idea, as a harmful construct has been played all the way out, right? Um, so I, I, I have one sentence on the Knicks and I'll give you the sentence and then before I give the attached rant, um, because it's a rant. Um, I, I, started, <laughs> I, start, I started typing, and I, I didn't stop for 30 minutes. Um, and it's not a 30-minute rant, obviously. It takes a ton longer to actually write something than it does to say something. Um, but, point being, I have one sentence, and then a rant. Um, and in between, I would love your thoughts, because I know you have a whole con- context um, context blurb, whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. Whole context setup, right? So my one sentence on the Knicks is, I literally have nothing left to say. I'm done. I have not <laughs> a single thing left to say about the New York Knicks franchise or Jim, Jimmy Dolan, right? I'm done. I am absolutely done. And I've been that way for three years. And I will continue to be that way indefinitely. So that is my one sentence. Do you want to give any um, context before I explain myself? So I just want to point out, they are 2-2 two and two so far. They beat the Milwaukee Bucks. Which who was a really good team? Uh, they beat the Cleveland Cavaliers, who are undefeated. Uh, we have some exciting young pieces in Obi Toppin and the nine guys who went to Kentucky. Uh, you know, it's it's an interesting team, as as you're saying, because it's hard to drop the excitement uh, the excitement for it, and like you just want to be done with them but it's like Al Pacino once you think you're out they they just pull you back in you know like think about I mean just think about the 2018-2019 season right the Knicks won 17 games were really bad all pretty much unwatchable but we were all kind of in on them and wanting them to lose because of this because of Zion was coming out Katie and Kyrie were the free agents and we thought that we had a chance to to get all three. Obviously, didn't play out that way. But even when they're bad, they they like suck you in 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 a weird way. And I it, this may be true for other franchises around the country, but because this is our team, it's in our city's team. It's just a lot more apparent to to us to see how like you know when just how the how the flips can switch so quickly on Knicks fans in in New York City of being really excited 
about the team and then being so upset that they are losing a lot and then being like, well, we should keep losing because we could get a really good draft pick. And so it's it's a really interesting experience being a Knicks fan the last five or six years. So first, how dare you mention a national treasure like Al Pacino in the same sentence as an abomination of a business like the New York Knicks. First of um, all, first of all, they are a great just pure business because somehow even with all the losing, they're still by far the most valuable franchise in the yeah. NBA. So <laughs> maybe the joke's on us because we keep going to the games. <laughs> but uh, I just want to make that clear distinction. That on, it's a pure basketball-related things is what we have issues with. I I don't think it's only basketball. Um, and I'll tell you why. In a second. I, I have a moral um, quandary with the Knicks. Um, I, I, but before I give my thoughts, I, I do want to talk about what – you said because I think there's one part of it I really disagree with and I'll get to this in my thoughts um I, I don't think there's hope um okay. I, I, I think there are hopeful ho- potentially hope inducing pieces uh but to me I think I, I derive hope from whether a system is working well right and we have not a single drop of an indication that any system or way of doing things inside the next organization other than squeezing money out of an already very wealthy city um, to end up in executives pockets is working right and when I look at that I don't really care if the ball is bounced in the right direction one or two times right um, like if you end up even though RJ Barrett came as the kind of consolation prize, um, following what could have been Zion and Ja, right? Yeah. Um, but even if you look at R.J. Barrett and Obi Toppin, those weren't moves that happened as a result of shrewdness. They happened as a result of either incompetence or a lack of a cogent, multi-step plan for building up a franchise. Um, and they just happened to be the worst possible outcome of a number of much more, um, I guess, potentially fruitful choices. Um, so even though they, they're decent pieces, right? I mm-hmm. think compared to what they could have been, given the circumstances, um, they're as um, dis- dismaying as a good piece can be. Uh, because I think everything's relative, right? Um, and well, so, they can play. I, I, I was going to say, so... The, the fair criticism is that for all of the, the, the big market teams, right, they are probably the team that has the weakest track record with kind of the marquee free agents the last 10 or so years. Because while they were able to sign Amari Stoudemire and sign or re-sign, Car, uh, re-sign Carmelo, they didn't reel in LeBron or Chris Paul or... Kawhi or any of these other super marquee guys who hit Frazier, Durant, right? So because of that, if you if you can't really build through free agency to get superstars, you kind of have to go through the, the – you have to, have to build through the draft. And with that, it's this inherently flawed process because you're relying on ping pong balls to magically go your way. 
to get a top three pick or the top pick in, the, in, in like a Zion draft. And where, you know, the Knicks had a 14% chance to draft Zion Williamson by getting the number one pick. That's an 86% chance that they weren't going to get it. So, so the fact that they can hook us all onto this notion of like 14%, 14% is, is really interesting because it's like, we shouldn't like we should all be focused on like the eighty six percent chance that we don't end up with Zion Williamson, but they're like no no no, we have a really good shot, and then the other part is you draft teenagers and it's just it's such a the draft is such a hit or miss sciency like there's no science to it that who knows who's really like there are things that you look for but. You know, they took Mitchell Robinson in the second round, and he was probably their best draft pick a couple of years. He's still a flawed player, like every other twenty-something-year-old, really early twenties guy. But they, I, I agree that that, that there's no there that, that because they've had so many executives that the plan seems muddled so much of the time that they're like snip snapping back and forth between strategies. But I at least feel like with with now with. Tom Thibodeau as the coach, Leon Rose and World Wide West in the front office that they're at least all on the same page. Now, it has resulted to us basically signing every CAA and Kentucky uh, available player. <laughs> but at least that's a plan. At least that's a strategy. Yeah. So I think there are two points, uh, two parts of what you just said that I, I, I would um, I would not necessarily push back on, but that I would have a foil for right uh the first is about the luck part right i I think you implied that um part of the next problem is that they've been quite unlucky um even though they've been in a few situations that if they had broken right uh could have worked out very well for the franchise um and i would agree with that i think luck is probably as important to a franchise's fortunes as being good or shrewd, uh, right? Mm-hmm. But I still think if you have been owned by somebody for 20 years um, and 95-plus percent of the opportunities that you were relying on to break your way um, have in turn broken um, your back, then it's probably because you either weren't as prepared or your organization wasn't as, um, I guess, sure, uh, no, prepared is the right word. It, it's probably because you weren't as prepared as you should have been, either in the short-term um, tactical planning or in the long-term strategic planning, right? Um, because I think luck, it luck, I don't know, there's something that... Uh, that like luck is luck breaks the way of the people that are good more often than not, uh, which implies that like if you're prepared or if you're smart, um, luck will gravitate towards you. And obviously, you know, luck. that that that's that's definitely true. They're not doing anything to try to make their own luck. And from all the reporting done by people who are around the team and around the league uh, for years, is that these guys who get hired for the front office get told that they're not going to have any influence, that they could put their plan together, as you said, to try to get this coherent five-year plan with a strategy and to try to, I guess, make their own luck. And then something happens and 
they get influence from above them that like, hey, we have to go in this direction. One of the really good signs I thought for just like how this team's going to look in the future is even though we missed on everybody last summer, we didn't do anything over the summer to like handcuff us for the future. Yes, it was funny that we signed like seven power forwards, but everyone except for Julius Randle was on a basically a one plus one contract with a team option and the Knicks let everyone else go. And they signed Marcus Morris and they were able to trade him for a first round draft pick. Uh, so they are, it's, they have a long way to go, but they, but they aren't doing anything to handcuff them in the years going forward. Like when we were in, I think it was ninth or 10th grade when they made the Andrea Bargnani trade where they, where they just gave up an unprotected first round pick for in a few years down, down the road. Like those types of moves kill you. Did they just kill you? And, Speaking of handcuffing, you haven't even said the words Isaiah Thomas yet. So, like, uh, uh, like, uh, absolutely. That was that was before our time. I actually appreciate. I, uh, even though he had a lot of terrible, terrible things that he did, not just on the court, but just off the court in the organization. I got to go to a bunch of Knicks games because they were so bad that <laughs> I got to see you know Kobe Bryant and the Suns with Nash and Amari like. The Celtics with when they, when they had KG like because they were so bad tickets were more available for a young basketball fan. So even though he was a horrific and he probably you know isn't that great of a guy by all accounts and what he's been uh, having to settle you know different court cases and stuff like that. But by bringing up Isaiah, it it shows that it's it's a long-winded thing that it's not just this past decade or this past five years, but it's really since like 2005, 2006. So can, can, I, can I make the bird's eye view zoomed out point here? Uh, it, it, this is this is like uh, this is like quintessential Stockholm syndrome, right? Like yeah. you are deriving hope from the fact that they did nothing wrong. Like for the first time, they did not f themselves over in eight different ways, and by the fact that they were so bad and so incompetent for so long that you could get into the games cheaply. Nobody else in the NBA would look at those two things and be like, yeah, you know what? That's a franchise on the right track. But we have been so tortured for so long that you're looking at these things and you're like, yeah, you know what? This hasn't been that bad, right? That is Stockholm Syndrome personified, is it not? We're, I mean, I mean it's, it's like we're waiting for, for the shock. It's, it's like we're in the uh, shock chair and like we're waiting for the shock to come and it just doesn't come and we're just like, wait a second. Like, we just have a young team that has its holes and its flaws, but like with Tibbs, it's they're they're going to compete. They're going to try to make moves around the edges because because that's what we have to do, right? We have to take shots on former lottery talents like Dennis Smith Jr. Even though he hasn't been great for us, he's a guy low risk, high reward. You just take a shot on him, right? You. You take a shot on Alfred Payton, who uh, has was a first-round pick, top 10 by Orlando, hasn't really panned out to be an all-star or a great player. He's probably a backup player on a, on a good team. 
but that's just a guy who's like, hey, let's just take a shot on him and see see what happens, right? Like they're they made a lot of low risk uh, moves, and that's better than what we've seen in our lifetime, which is, hey, you miss out on Kevin Durant, we're gonna go give Tim Hardaway Jr. or Courtney Lee eighteen plus million dollars a year. Because those are the moves that really, really handcuff you. No, for sure. And I, I think that means something. Although, I, I think that's a good segue into getting to the second point of what you said that I want to talk about. Um, because I think you're talking, I, I think at least what you're referring to is Knicks fans kind of like looking at what's happening and thinking in context of the past 15 years. Like, oh, so this isn't as bad as we used to, right? Let, 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 let's, let, I can see, I can see us going somewhere, right? Um, and I think that ties into your point about Knicks fans just dying for something to be hopeful about, right? Like yeah. talking themselves into the fourteen percent chance at Zion. Um, and I think the only way in which your point was errant uh, was that it implied that the franchise is doing the selling on the 14% chance at Zion, right? Yeah. I think if you look at what they've said, it's almost comically unrealistic, right? Like, I feel like anybody with a critical mind could, like, read through their statement on free agency and say to themselves, like, oh, that's never going to happen. Or even if there is a shot at that happening, like you said, 86-14, like, not great odds, right? Like, what else are you putting your hope in? That is a 14% chance of happening, right? I want to get into why Knicks fans are so thirsty for something to believe in, because I think there are probably two reasons, right? Um, and please tell me if you think that I'm out of my mind with this, but I've been thinking, this was one of the things I thought about last night. Number one, I think it's the New York media being, it's so big and so uh, proficient um or yeah or prolific rather um that it needs things to talk about and that in combination with how much love and goodwill there is uh, despite all sense or reason in the city for the Knicks as a franchise would mean that people want to hear about the Knicks and the local media which has a ton of time and not much to fill with because New York sports have not been exactly the bastion of like greatness over the past 10 years. They need to talk about something, right? So obviously you're going to go to like, are we getting honest in two years? Like what about Zion this summer? We have a shot, right? I don't think that means that there actually is any realistic possibility. Um, but I do think it means that if people are willing to buy it, then I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's just a reflection of how much New York just loves basketball, you know? Like I think, up, yeah. I, I think that's exactly it because we both grew up in New York City. At almost every single public park, there is a basketball court or a basketball hoop. And the whole city, so you just see if you're walking around Monday afternoon, right? The kids at, at the local school, they're outside waiting for their parents to, to pick them up. They're playing basketball. Saturday mornings, you see a bunch of old guys, old men and women who it's their Saturday morning. They're playing pickup basketball. You see 8 o'clock at night basketball. In the summer, there's all these leagues from the West 4th League to Rucker Park to, to Dykeman where it's super, super competitive basketball, not just at the middle school or the high school level, but 
pro-am basketball where it's adults who are trying to keep either the the dream alive or who are professional players overseas they're all kind of they're all playing in new york and it's this the city loves basketball because you see when the knicks are good people oh go to the games and it's out in full force like this it's is not a, even good it's just like if they have a shot at the eight seed but like um, but like yeah. especially when they are good the city oh is on fire and they love it and it's this idea that like somehow that the pickup basketball game on Saturday or Sunday mornings at your local YMCA is somehow a better product than the Knicks on TV or it feels similar. That's I think is the is the issue of why we're all so desperate because it's like we're we're a basketball city. It's a city that that loves basketball and the Knicks, except for you know a few uh, seasons in in the 2010s, really had a really poor run. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't think there's any overstating your point about New York City loving basketball um, and about just being obsessed with the game both in thought and in action, right? By, like, mulling over it and then actually, like, doing it all the time. Um, and maybe it was just because we played basketball a lot growing up. But I know that there are kids that, like, would in any other part of the country, not even have a drop of interest in basketball that either felt that they had to have a working understanding of the NBA or, like, would have to be, like, not terrible so they can come play pickup just to be involved in what's going on socially because things were so centered around basketball. Yeah. Um, just as a happening, right? I know me, you, and Jack Herkman's. Um, used to go down to Pier 2 to play basketball. I don't think Jack Herkins would be into basketball anywhere else in the country, but no. because he grew up in New York, um, he felt like you have to have some sort of literacy in this to participate in what people are doing. Um, and I, 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 well, actually, before I go on, like, would you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, it, it was also like, I think it is another great example is at, at the school we went to, we had an outdoor basketball court and it was called the red top. And basically every day from between when school ended to when uh, we would all get on the bus to go home, we would all scramble to play 25 minutes of four on four, or five on five half court basketball. And there was eight hoops and, or six hoops. And there would be a game going on on every single hoop and it was competitive. It was fun, but it was like, as you said, it wasn't just the six guys on the varsity basketball team who were who were playing. It was just people, boys and girls from every single age in every single grade who was just playing. Whether you were someone who really played basketball a lot and you really loved it, or if it was just like, hey, you were just a athlete just playing with your friends. Like, just the idea of pick up basketball is this kind of universal thing in New York City. It's it's really cool. Yeah, and I also think there's one other part um, that also can't be stressed enough, being that it's one of the only activities that cuts across socioeconomic lines mm -hmm. um, in the city. Like, when you live in a place as thoroughly developed as New York, um, you're pretty short on communal space. Um, and for that reason, like, you kind of tread within your socioeconomic bubbles, whatever they may be, even though you end up crossing paths a lot. Um I, I just don't think there are many things to do in the city um, that are outdoors and unrestricted like basketball. Like no matter who you are, you can go to the park and play and communicate and like share time 
over this game. Um, no matter where you come from, where you go to school, or what you spend your time doing otherwise, there's no law or no barrier to going to the park for anybody. I mean, I don't want to say no barrier because they very well may be. Um, but point being is it's one of the few things that everyone in the city can and does do together. Um, at least everyone who's interested. Mm. Um, yeah. And like when the Knicks are good, like you said, the city is humming and no matter who, like I can go to the Bronx and be like, yo, you see, you see Obi Toppin and they're like, hell yeah, like, he's nice. Right. Um, and it's the one thing that like, no matter who, where, or when, like anyone can get into. Right. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to, I feel like when the Mets are really good because the Yankees have been really good. And when the Yankees are in the playoffs, you know, the city's definitely uh, paying attention and they're, they're super into it, but it's this different vibe that when the Mets are really good or when the Mets are doing like really well, it's this different energy in the city, maybe just at a pure surprise because it doesn't happen as frequently. But I just remember when, you know, the two best Knicks seasons was early on in the 2010s. It was obviously Lynn Sanity when he came out. We were 8-15 we and 15 in this lockout year. Amari was hurt. Carmelo was hurt. We go with the third-string Jeremy Lynn at point guard, and he leads us on a seven-game winning streak, right, to, to get back in the playoffs. And, yes, we, we, we made the playoffs, and we lost a bunch of games, and we ended up losing in five to Miami which we went to one of those playoff games, which was so much fun, that it was kind of like, okay, we're, we're going to run it back, right? We're going to bring back Jeremy Lin, you know, we got Carmelo, we got Amari, Tyson Chandler, we got some shooters, like, this could be really fun. Like, obviously we don't, we let Lin go, he ends up on the Rockets, and but that next season, we end up the two-seed, a 50-win team, playing ex- really, really modern basketball, shooting tons of threes, Carmelo's playing the four, you know, it was so much fun. But we lose in the second round to Indiana, which is kind of interesting that we lost to Roy Hibbert and his verticality on the inside, and Roy Hibbert ended up being out of the NBA two or three years later. Shows how fast the game changed and how we were right and how we were playing, but wrong for the exact timing. We're still like a year or two years early. But but then... But then right after that, it was like injuries, Carmelo uh, declined, that he wasn't, you know, one of the five best players in the NBA anymore. Like, And it just happened like that so quickly that we were picking fourth and taking Porzingis because we won 17 games. Yeah, so I, I was I, – I... Last night I was thinking about whether there I, I've had any positive experiences with the Knicks, um, at least since I can remember. And the, and Linsanity and the uh, 54 win season were the two that I could think of. But as I thought about them more deeply, I actually came out a bit more cynical on both. Um, number one, because I, I think they both kind of happened despite the organization's better, um, better intentions. Um, like Jeremy Lin was at best serendipitous um at worst the product of everyone else the knicks had chosen ahead of him um literally going down so thoroughly that they had no choice but to give him a chance and sure it was fun um but i don't think that reflects um at all on the shrewdness of the knicks franchise and then the 54 win season i think um 
part of what you said um, is true, being that like they were a bit too early and they got a bit stymied by the verticality thing. Another part was that um, that team kind of started to break down. It was really old um, and really creaky, and its second-best player, Amari Sotomayor, had no cartilage in his knees. Um, and, of course, they couldn't do anything with him because they wasted the amnesty clause on Chauncey frickin' Billups. Um, and so, yes, I, I agree. It was fun as hell. Oh, and that's not even to mention that that team relied extraordinarily on J.R. Smith as a as an offensive catalyst, right? And if you're relying on J.R. Smith, period, you're probably going to have a bad time, right? Um, but point being is that, like, I think both of those two brightest moments from the last 20 years kind of happened despite the Knicks' best efforts, right? Or they so- went sour because of something the organization did to react to them, right? Um, and I think while they were both fun, at best, they're both reminders of how just, like, sour the Knicks, like, touch is um, on everything positive that's, like, in their orbit. Um, maybe I'm just a cynic, and maybe I'm just jaded. Yeah, by... you're, you're, you're being a little too cynical and a little too jaded because you could say, yes, the – the whole by having Jeremy Lin on the roster wasn't because we had scouted him and, and we thought that he could be a star or an all-star player. He was an end-of-the-bench guy who, you're right, due to injuries and poor performance, we just needed a spark and all credit to him. Like He became the talk of sports for two weeks. Like We won seven straight games. We beat the Lakers with Kobe and Pau Gasol and Andrew Bynum on a Friday night with no Carmelo. And he single-handedly got us back into the playoff picture where we were able to make the playoffs again because the year before we, we made the playoffs but lost to Boston. We got swept, and but we got back to the playoffs. And, yes, that team wasn't going to win a championship. Obviously, it was Miami's year. It was their time. But that is what we're talking about before about just luck, right? Like you need some things to go your way. And Jeremy – the, the, the two weeks of the Lynn Sanity, Jeremy Lynn was this huge, huge moment, but it speaks to what we were talking about of like the football being pulled out from us is he leads us to the playoffs. He has to have knee surgery. He tore his, uh, he tore his meniscus, but then we don't tend, we don't give him an offer sheet as he was a, rest, a restricted free agent where he's this hero in, in New York and we don't resign him. So that's just kind of just like more so of the, what is the what is the team doing? Because he would have been loved by New York because he would have been our guy, right? And then the following year, you're right. We did rely on old guys like Jason Kidd and Amari, and you know we we signed Kenyon Martin, but we signed Kenyon Martin to like a ten day in February that got extended. Like we weren't relying on Kenyon Martin to play 35 minutes a game and like really, really be a key to our team. He was an off-the-bench, like, toughness, uh, veteran leader-type player with some playoff experience. And you're right. If you have J.R. Smith as your number one or number two option, you probably aren't going to go that far in in the playoffs or anything like that. But when you have J.R. Smith coming off the bench as a spark plug to get his own shot off and to, and to shoot a lot of threes, 
that is his role, and he played it really, really, really well that yeah. that whole it season. It was like, it was really fun, and it was just this. It just showed that like they they make the playoffs, and it was just early, and that somehow again instead of building on it and sticking with that style of play and going all in on the small ball revolution that was coming literally two years later with with the Warriors, they they just the next year was just a, a disaster where they hire Phil Jackson. Right. And we all remember like, like even though it turned out really poorly because he was getting $60 million over five years and turned out was and turned out lived in California and wasn't really working that much. We were all so excited about Phil Jackson. Like the savior was here. Right. And so I think that's just like the perfect way to describe the Knicks is Lucy's holding the football we're running up to, to kick it, and it's just pulled out from under us. We go flying up in the air and land crashing on our backs again. But we build, so, but we build ourselves up to make the run at the football again. So here's why I don't buy that. And I don't think I have anything to offer on the next beyond this point, um, because I think this may be an agree-to-disagree moment. But here's why I don't buy that. Um, because for better or for worse, I don't think relying on luck is a way to sustain um, a positive relationship with your franchise, right? So I think the role of a sports franchise, when at its best, is to give whoever really cares about it an escape from the issues of their real lives and give them like a community outside of whatever they may spend the majority of their time working on or working towards, right? Um, and... I guess if I'm going to take that framework and apply it to the Knicks, then the standard that I use for whether I care or not about the Knicks is, are you giving me or are you giving the people of New York a consistent escape from whatever may be stressful to them on a day-to-day basis, right? And like I said, I don't rely on luck, or at least I I I may be a very lucky person, but I don't want to rely on luck to create my create wherever i'm gonna end up right um so when i look at the knicks i look at like what have you done to at least make it so that you are doing your best to create your own luck whether the chips fall in your direction or not i can't blame you for right but what are you doing that you can control to fulfill that goal of giving people an escape and when i look at the knicks decision making process um and when you look at those best moments i don't think you can tie much if any sustained escapism um from the past 20 years to the decision making of the franchise it would be one thing if they're struggling with a long-term plan and just happen to be unlucky, right? Like if you draft Brandon Roy and his knees give out in three years, and obviously I know doc, like team doctors understood that prior, which is why a lot of teams didn't draft him, right? But like if you have a plan, you draft Brandon Roy, you, you have fun with him for a few years, and it just so happens that like something terrible happens to his knee, right? I think that's a lot different than if you – don't have a plan and you luck into somebody like Jeremy Lin for like 
a fun year or a fun few months. And then that same incompetence breeds more, um, I, I, I guess, unentertaining or... I mean... Un, you know, it, you know yeah, but like you were just describing Amari Stoudemire, which is, yes, he had an knee surgery when he was a Phoenix, but he was an all-star, one of the best free agents in that class. Yes, he wasn't LeBron, he wasn't Dwayne Wade, but he was one of the best free agents. And we had him, and that's how you built through the, you know, you get an all-star player, right? And then we traded for Carmelo. Now we had two all-stars. But as you said, Amari's body broke down. Who's like, like that is, you could say that, okay, maybe we should have played him fewer minutes and done more. But that was before the time of load management, really. And so his body broke down. Is that just bad luck or was that bad management to have a continued play? Well, what if one of our all-stars just has really, really bad knee injury luck while we're trying to make a push. So, well, I, I think I think it depends on what you can discern at the time, right? Like, obviously, you can't predict everything that will go wrong in the world. But around the Amari signing, people were saying, is this a good idea if we can't insure his knees? And then the amnesty through the CBA came about again. They were like, this is perfect. We should save it for him. And beyond that, when D'Antoni was playing in, like, 37 minutes a game or whatever it was when he had that streak of, like, 30-point games, people were like, are you sure with his knees you should be running him into the ground and et cetera, et cetera, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not I'm not asking the Knicks to predict everything that's going to happen. I'm just saying, look, from your chair right now, just do your due diligence. Just think through what's going on. And in the Amari example, if the people were doing their due diligence and they could tell at the time, there's a very good chance this ends poorly, very quickly. Um, and I think that's very different than doing your diligence and just having things turn out poorly, right? Um, so then, so then on on the flip side, is okay. You want them to do their due diligence, right? Well, Achilles tears for NBA players, especially for NBA players from 30 years old and beyond, is a really really bad sign. Almost nobody has been able to come back and and has been the same player. So were you upset that the Knicks did their due diligence on Durant's Achilles injury and said, we're not willing to take that risk? Or would you have wanted them to give him a max contract offer, if accept or decline? But they did their due diligence, and they said, look, with his Achilles injury and his other foot injury, we're not comfortable making this decision. I think that's a perfectly fine process. Uh, to go through because I think if you take that process to 100 different circumstances, 96 out of those 100 will probably end up in the, I'd say, top 5% of possible outcomes uh, that you could have based on the circumstance, right? Um, And of course, you may get lucky or unlucky once or twice because wacky things happen. But I'm very big on like, rather than take it rather than looking at what would have been nice in this circumstance, given what we know retrospectively, Mm -hmm. let's look at what system will produce the most amount of high quality outcomes over time, because we're not just living in that one period of Kevin Durantis, right? Like ideally you want a team to sustain their brilliance over a long period of time. Like Spurs fans haven't seen a losing team despite mediocrity at the moment. They haven't seen a losing team in like 25 years. And I would argue that's not only because they drafted Tim Duncan and David Robinson long ago, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but because the people in power there think things through and they weigh their risks and rewards and they kind of just like make the best decision, give them what they know. And sure, sometimes you trade away Kawhi. Um, but they also drafted Kawhi. Was, uh, well, uh, well, or, drafting Kawhi well there, trading but, for Kawhi first on draft night. But you, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Like I think 90, 95 out of the Spurs' last 100 moves have probably ended up um, close to as good as they possibly could have been because they did their due diligence. And sure, maybe the five, the other five went a bit awry and sure, maybe people focus on those moves. But I think on the aggregate, like over 10, 20 years, they probably bought themselves like a number of different wins a year just by like being shrewd, you know? And I would much rather have that than get lucky once but have ridiculous decisions the other 18 years, you know? Well... It's interesting you bring up the Spurs because you are right. They picked David Robinson. Great pick. They were very good. Then he gets injured. They are really, really bad. It works out that it's the Tim Duncan year. They get the number one pick. They get Tim Duncan, one of the 10 best basketball players of all time, right? But what they did so well is they hit on the their biggest decisions, right? They hit on their franchise superstar players and stuck with them. They made mistakes around the edges, as any team does, right? They're not going to have a perfect roster every single season. But when they were in the position to make the big franchise-altering decision, they, they nailed it, right? What the Knicks did was that they, for just, just for one, haven't been in the same spot to make a type of franchise altering pick because the ping pong balls haven't gone their way. But the, the second part is that they, when they have been in that spot with Porzingis, they gave up too early, even though he had his, his injury concerns, right? They gave up too early and they didn't build around their new franchise players, which probably goes to what you're saying about this long term they don't have this coherent plan but when you have so much front office turnover as they do it's really hard for a plan to be able to really come into place and really develop if you're replacing your gms every 18 months to to two years yeah no doubt but then i would ask who's making the decision to replace your gms every 18 months to two years like why aren't you letting your gms do the work that you promised them the time to do right so um, now and we we know where that discussion ends up but point being is that that's basically how i just like, like with any other person right like yeah. I, I i try and judge people like based on what you can control how well are you doing um and i think the knicks have pretty close to an f based on what they can control although i don't know i'm not the basketball aficionado i used to be and you would know better than i for sure well, um but i think your point about the gms is pretty um astute being that e- even if that may explain why their franchise has had such trouble keeping a coherent long-term plan then you got to ask well, why the hell do they keep turning over gms and executives um and like I said, we know where that ends up. But basically, yeah. And so now that, that, that's and, why I'm dumping the Knicks until they prove until they prove to be worthy of my trust. Otherwise, Not and now, trust, yeah. And now this brings us to the part of the podcast where we make a public plea 
to Michael Bloomberg <laughs> to please buy the Knicks. Please, for the sake of all New Yorkers, please buy the team. Uh, I, 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 want, I want to make it clear for the record. I'm abstaining from that plea because I'm so done with the Knicks as is. I refuse to use my public, my, my public words to encourage them or not encourage them to do anything. I am done. I am out. I refuse to use my energy or time anymore. They destroyed my morale too many times over. I don't care what the Knicks do. You know what? I don't care. I really don't care. So until somebody has bought them or until I have a legitimate reason to be sustainably hopeful, I don't care. So are you going to root for the Nets this year? Hell no. Um, But I I, I want to get to the Nets because I have have some thoughts. The most most interesting team in the NBA. Can we – so can we – all right, so I, for, before I get my thoughts, I'd love to hear why you say they're the most interesting team in the NBA. Well, for one, they they went all in on Durant and Kyrie, right, obviously in free agency. And they're the most interesting team because they have a brand-new head coach in Steve Nash, who's a Hall of Fame player, two probable Hall of Fame players on their team, one who's maybe one of the best 12 basketball players of all time if his career ended today in Kevin Durant. Uh, and they have Kyrie Irving. They have a really deep team. They have, and yet, even though they have deep team, they're also in every single trade rumor for every single player out there because they have the pieces and the draft picks to make a trade if they want to go get a third star. So they're going to be not just on every segment of first take that talks about the best teams in the NBA, but they're going to be mentioned in every segment about free agency or trade rumors. And then also they have all of the off the court stuff with Durant and Kyrie Irving that they kind of feed into and create headlines in their own way when they're doing like an Instagram live and talking about who's going to get the most post-ups in their offense, right? They just have so many characters and so many personalities and, and so many things that could go wrong and so many different things that if it goes right is going to be spectacular and they could win the championship. That's that's to me is the best indicator that they are just the most interesting team in the NBA because they're so new. We don't know a lot about this this team yet. Okay. So I haven't been following closely enough per se to break down the nuts and bolts of the basketball thing. Mm-hmm. I know Spencer Dinwiddie just went down. Yeah. Um, and something about a third ball handler, ball handler, I don't know. Um, I, I used to, I don't right now. Anyway, I, I think it's indisputable that the NBA is a star-driven league, right? Yeah. I think the nuts are interesting for the latter of the three reasons that you gave being that Katie and Kyrie are on Instagram talking about post-ups, right? Um, because I think if you're talking about teams with superstars who have a lot of time, or not necessarily a lot of time, a lot of energy and personality that is dissectable, but also dissectable in depth publicly, you're talking about the Nets with Katie and Kyrie, right? Um, and... Can, can we – and I want to zoom in on Katie, actually. Can we talk about him? Because I've been thinking about him a lot over the past, I don't know, couple weeks as sure. he's made this miraculous return. Sure. Okay. So 
we came of age with Kevin Durant, right? Like, he was drafted in 06, the Sonics. 07, um, yeah. As we were coming into our our adolescence and our basketball super fandom, um, he was coming his own into his own as an NBA superstar, right? Mm-hmm. We were there. I, I remember we were in your parents' bedroom with our younger siblings when he hit that crazy, like, torso-twisting, like, buzzer beater yeah. against Dallas. I don't know, but you know. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, it was the only TV that we could get some privacy for to watch a game because our parents were just, like, talking, 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 talking. talking. Uh, right, and <laughs> screamed so loudly that they literally had to come up and, like, come check on us because they thought that, like, somebody broke their leg or, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know, split their head in half, right? Um, so we... Growing up with KD, we spent tons of hours, especially because Hassan was a quote-unquote Thunder fan um, when we were playing basketball with him in high school. So we spent a ton of time thinking about KD. Um, and despite all of that, I-, I have one question about him that I, I just can't answer. Um, and I would love your thoughts before I try to answer it. Sure. Um, tell me when you're ready. Cause I'm ready. I- 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 it's simple, but I think it's going to dump- uh, confound you. Okay. Do you like him? Do I like him as as a player or as a person? Or just uh, don't, generally? don't overthink it. If I ask you, do you like Kevin Durant? What is your knee jerk answer? I think that my my knee jerk answer is that I don't understand him, and that's totally totally fine because I don't know Kevin Durant. It's very unlikely that I'll ever get to know Kevin Durant, but I think that. With this age of, especially just celebrity, we, we have this feeling that, that we, quote unquote, know the the famous people in in the world because of just the movies they're in, the way that they appear on talk shows, you know, all that stuff. But I think that Durant, especially the last four or five years, once he went to the Warriors and his last year in OKC and his time with, with the Nets is he's proving that he's his own individual person and he's doing things because he's that's just what he wants to do right and it's funny that we all say that like you know we had this higher expectation for our athletes and our celebrities that while they're in their 20s they can't make any mistakes or figure out who they are as people even though that's what everyone else does in their teens and 20s especially for a guy who didn't really go to college he was he was a freshman one and done. So he's been figuring it all out. Usually while we all try to figure it out in college, he's been figuring it out in the public light for all these years that I think that like that, that I don't know if I like him or not. I think I just don't understand him. And I think that he's one of the most interesting guys in the NBA because he is so good on the basketball court that we want him as just a, uh, as a basketball community to behave in a certain way or to act in a certain way. And he's just like, that's just not who I am. Like, like we want him to stop responding to trolls on Twitter, but he's just like, look, that's just who I am. I think it's fun to just, like, troll them back, kind of, you know? But because Michael Jordan and LeBron didn't do that, or Kobe, we're like, don't do that, Kevin. Like, be above it all. But he's like, look, it's fun. Uh, so, before I say anything, I don't think – I think it's hard to overstate just how good he is. Um, yeah. Simmons calls him – one of the 20 best players of all time indisputably yes i wouldn't dare challenge that um the man is smooth and has almost every basketball accolade under the sun in addition to being passing like the eye test right like you watch him on a basketball court with other professional players and he makes them look like they're freaking eighth graders that 
don't know that can't do it like eighth graders playing like a varsity player right yeah. like that just can't do anything with them no matter what they try right yeah um and i think that is crucial to um at least state as a preface to what i'm about to say like he is unfreaking believable and it looks like he's gonna be the first guy to ever come back 100 percent from an achilles injury right which is also an achievement in its own right. well actually before i say that does it look like that's about to happen so I'm not I'm I'm reserving my judgment or critique on Durant and how he looks physically because it's been such a long layoff and such a weird off season, right? Especially with how much training camp they've been able to have and how many preseason games. I want to give it about 20 to 25 regular season games to really see how he's moving, how he's operating because once the grind of the season starts, that's kind of where you see the guys who are who have ha- who have been banged up? That that's kind of where where you see the effects more on them, and especially like in the playoffs when things get really intense. But you know, I, I'm not I I don't want to be like the guy who's just like, well, on this play he left his jumper short. Like, is his Achilles bothering him? Like, does he have his leg strength back? Because there are times where he makes a move, and you're like, this dude is back. He's like incredible. And then there's other times where you're like. He hasn't played basketball in a five-on-five setting a lot in the NBA for 18 months. He's still got as much as he doesn't look like it because he's so good. It's like, that's probably a little rusty. Like, that's not the same just because he wasn't in the bubble dominating like a healthy Kevin Durant would have, you know? So so I'm trying to reserve all judgment until, like, about February 1st. So I think that's a wise take. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to add nor subtract from it because I think it's wise and it leaves room for nuance, um, which is something rare in sports media. So I want to praise it and cherish Thanks, it when, when it exists, right? All right? I appreciate it. So I'm not, I'm not going to touch the basketball side. So I, I'm just going to jump into the research that I did on him last night. I, I did about five minutes of research. Um, do you know what his Twitter banner says? His twi- Twitter banner? Like, like his or cover his... photo. Like, I, I, well, I know his bio, or at least his bio for a while, is like, it, it's something along the lines of like, I do me and I chill. No, it's, that's his bio. Okay. But his, his cover photo. Uh, No. So his cover photo says, I hate small talk, what you want, um, question mark, which I think is perfect, um, especially given that his bio is I do me and I chill, right? Because that, yeah. that cover photo to me says, I literally have a zero tolerance for bullshit. I'm just out here to do whatever it is I do. I don't want your pleasantries and I don't want anything except exactly what you intend for me, right? Like. I want no fluff or nothing, right? And I think that is the perfect representation of what Katie tries to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and w- would you agree with that? I just think he's just a guy who loves playing basketball. And he wants to just play basketball. And he doesn't like the fact that he has to do media twice a day. And that during the course of the season, it's a lot of the same questions. That it's all this talk about, you know, just like going back to when he played Westbrook when or when he played Westbrook his first year after leaving Oklahoma City for for Golden State. Like the whole summer, early part of the season was always like almost like every day someone asked him like have you and Russell Westbrook talked, you know? And it's I'm sure it's super annoying for every single day you're asked pretty much the same questions, especially cuz he just wants to play basketball that 
it it makes a lot of sense that he just because he's been in the public spotlight for so long that he is just kind of sick and tired of it. Yeah, but I I, I have a criticism of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's important to say that I, I don't know the man, so it could be he's the most pleasant, amazing person privately, and I wouldn't know, right? I can yeah. only have opinions based on what I what on the information I have currently, right? Of course. That being said, I really dislike how grouchy he is yes. with the public. Um, and here's why. I, I do think that he has every single right to make mistakes and do what he wants and be unburdened by the thoughts of others, irrespective of what those mistakes might be, right? Um, well, not irrespective, but point being, as long as he's not hurting anybody else, like you should be able to learn from your own mistakes, right? Mm-hmm. That being said, I don't think you can get mad at other people for critiquing your mistakes because yeah. I think it's one thing to do what you want and it's another thing to try and control how others react to doing what you want. It's kind of like the whole debate on free speech without getting into anything political. It's basically like you have the you can say whatever you want, but what you say isn't going to be free from consequence, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, right. And what I don't like is when he's like on NBA on like the TNT guys show. Um, and gives one word answers. Yeah. And giving one word answers or when he's just like being rude to media members. And I don't even like, like the burner accounts in the public because I, I just feel like, okay, you should be able to go go to Golden State if you want. Feel mm-hmm. free. You are a man. You are a black man in America. In fact, because of that, I would encourage you and think in order to break down social barriers, you should unapologetically do whatever you want, right? That being said, and there are a bunch of racialized critiques here, but let's throw those aside for a second with the criticism, right? Um, that being said, if you go to Golden State, like, people are going to have a problem with it. And, mm-hmm. like, if you really are above it, just ignore it. Or just, like, actually enjoy what you are doing as opposed to spend your time trying to quiet down the backlash to the choice that you had every right to make. Like, if you really believe that you had every right to make the choice you did, like, why are you so concerned with all the criticism, especially when you are one of the 20 greatest basketball players ever? You are a well-spoken public figure. You are an aspiring businessman. Like, why the hell are you, like, re- thinking about, like, Doritos dude, like, 882 on Twitter? <laughs> like, what the hell, like, what the hell, what the hell is that? And maybe that's just who you are, and maybe you do care, but don't get mad at other people for reacting to the thing you had every right to do, right? Like, you don't like the criticism. It's their right to say what they say in the same way that you have the right to do what you want, right? And I just don't think that's the way to treat people, no matter who you are. Like, if you don't like the NBA on TNT, guys, just say, hey, I would really rather not do this, or I don't like how you guys critique me. Don't give grouchy, like, passive-aggressive answers, you know? Like, just either come out and say what you're feeling, or just, like, ignore it, you know? That's what, like, being mature is about. Either communicate yourself or go live your life. Um, But don't exist in this weird middle ground where you're, like, passively taking shots at, like, the whole world for treating you unfairly um, and then playing the whatever it is, right? Like, 
I, I, I just feel like uh, I, I, I just don't like that whole shtick. Yeah. Um, and, I agree. Yeah. And like, like I said, I love that he's super authentic and real. That is my favorite quality in another human being. Like, I think if you're trying to be a good person, being real is where you start. Right. And everything. Well, being real is one of the few places where you could start and everything else could be built upon that to reach goodness as a person. Right. And the fact that he is in spades real and that I still just like watching and I'm like, you're just a grouch. It means that like, you must really be like, uh, I don't know. It's not like I'm the end all be all like, <laughs> word on who is a good person or not. But like, I don't know. I just, fucking, I just, I just like watch him and I'm just like, Oh God, just like, can you treat people nicely? Like, this is what, like it's, you don't have to like them. You yeah. have to give them your time. Just like, just be like a mature adult, you know. It's it's really interesting because we grew up, you know, Yankee fans with Derek Jeter. Derek Jeter talked to the media every single day for twenty years, and he basically said nothing every single day. He basically gave a non-answer. He gave a good. He just he he answered every question, but without causing any controversy, and. Maybe that skill is a lot harder to do than than we think because we were just so spoiled growing up with Derek Jeter. But it's I agree with you that I I it's it's not cool the way that he treats certain members of the media who have been critical of him as it's as it's their job to be. Um, but it's also he's in the, the position where he's answering the questions where he's in full control of the narrative around it, which is just like. Just give complete non-answers the way that Derek Jeter and some of these great quarterbacks have done. Yeah. Like, that's an option, you know? Like, well, Bill Belichick is kind of rude to people, right? But be be Tim Duncan. Just, like, be a good teammate publicly and, like, don't give interesting answers to anything. You don't have to be rude. Just make it clear through your actions. Like, hey, I'm just, like, not here for this whole circus, right? Like, I kind of just want to, like, do my thing, play basketball, and go home, right? Then act like it, you know? So it'll, it'll be very interesting to see how it plays out this year with the really high expectations on the court, all of the trade rumors, and it's it's not just him now where it's him doing something in Golden State that gets a lot of the attention. It's the Kyrie factor as well because Kyrie is another guy who's a who's a great, great on-the-court basketball player. So we're recording this on Thursday, New Year's Eve, last night they played the Hawks. He had one move where... He dribbled up the court. He was on the left side, got a screen, split the the defenders perfectly, and then like Euro stepped and like beautiful left hand layup off the glass, like an insane basketball play, right? But he also does things that I don't want to say that they are wrong because they're not wrong, but they agitate people in some weird way, or at least people laugh at him for it whether it's the sage even if that's just something that that he wants to do because something that that he believes in you know that's totally totally fine but it's just they're both guys who are just you know as as you know that the term goes they're just different and the fact that they're different is cool and totally fine but it's like it takes people a while to just come to grips with just like they're just going to do what they want to do because they're so not the typical superstar athlete that we're like accustomed to i mean uh, like i said i don't think this is about not fitting the mold right because there are people that don't fit the mold of what a superstar athlete or public figure should be they're kind of beloved right um clay thompson is probably one of those people um who's kind of 
quiet. And again, another person that doesn't really do media stunts or even Russell Westbrook, um, that like don't necessarily fit the mold of what a public figure um, of that stature should be, but aren't like maligned. Right. Um, I, I, so Katie, I think I can sort of wrap my head around Kyrie. I've given up on, um, he's well, like my sincerely, like, I, I just don't understand him. Well, um, I don't well, understand why he does what he does, where it comes from, or like, why the hell he pisses people off so much, and I'm not going to try to. All I can say is that I've never seen freaking person handle basketball like that in my entire life. So, Clay Thompson, I think it's just the one of people's favorite players in the NBA. It's not just because he's super, super good and that he's an incredible two-way player and, and all this stuff. Is that he just he's un, he's unapologetic about what he does, but it's he does. He's just kind of funny about it, and matter of fact, like my favorite Clay Thompson story ever is he overslept for a practice, missed the practice, because when he woke up, he was like, well, by the time I get there, it'll be over anyway, so I'm just going to go back to bed. And and that night, or the, the following night for, for their game, he scores 60 points. Yeah, it was just like something just like incredible, and so he's just so pure in a way and so authentic that it's different because I, I just feel like with Kyrie and KD is that even though that they're being real and authentic to who they are, it just really doesn't feel like they're being authentic. Look, uh, my point is, is that there are ways to break the mold of being a superstar public figure athlete or a black male public figure that don't piss everyone off in your wake that don't leave like a wake of like shit talking, like angry people. Um, like Kyrie did in Boston or even in Cleveland to some degree. Right. Like there are ways to do that without pissing everyone off. Um, and as a white dude, I probably shouldn't be the one levying that critique, but that being said, like, I, I, I don't know. I don't think that could be stressed enough. Uh, although to not drone on too long about the same thing, I will say that, um, I do agree. The combination of both uh, both Kaidi Kaidi, ooh ooh, what if, that's like a new couple name, <laughs> right? Like Kaidi. Anyway, uh, the combination of those two does make the Nets a fascinating case study. Also, the fact that Steve Nash, who by all accounts is one of the best teammates of all time, um, and as we we met him like for two seconds in like eighth grade. Cool guy. Um, yeah, but, like, seemed like a genuinely great guy. Like, I feel like that's the definition of, like, who are you when you have no incentive to treat people right? Um, that shows your true character. Like, he just met a basketball camp full of eighth graders, and he was, like, the most gracious person that you could imagine, right? Um, so, like, I think the interesting part also is that they have, like, the greatest dude who's, like, playing the string master with those egos, right? That... And also, he's not just playing, he's not trying to manage all, all the egos, but he's also trying to manage the basketball part of it because it is hard to coach guys who are as good as Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. And yes, everybody in the NBA is really good at basketball, like that's obvious, but guys who are as good as, K, as KD and Kyrie are because they're so skilled that it's just like, you don't necessarily have to run a play or get them to buy into to certain things sometimes, and it could still work out. So it's how so it's all about not just managing their egos and their personalities, but it's getting them to really buy into like the team concept. And with Nash, as as this is his first year, and he has a very 
uh, experienced assistant coaching staff to help him. But that will be really interesting to see how how it plays out because Nash has this vision for how like the team is going to play, but they could win not playing that way because Katie and Kyrie are so good. You know, it, I, <laughs> I I well okay. So my, I have two different thoughts uh, jumbling around in my head, but basically I'm going to say neither one of them and just say yes. I, I, I mean, I think that's the right point, being that like I I. I there are a lot of really talented teams in the NBA. What separates them? Uh, oh, oh no! Now I remember what I was going to say. I think the big project with the Nets isn't only like managing basketball as the top two guys. I was listening to I don't know, maybe, I, maybe it was the Bill Redden podcast. I don't know, but basically there was somebody on that was talking about how Kareem needed to figure out early on, or one of Kareem's coaches needed to figure out early on that you can give the ball to Kareem every single play of the game and he'll score exactly up to a certain threshold. Um, and then at some point, no matter what you do, the other guys will need to get involved. Right. So mm-hmm. the big challenge with having somebody as talented as Kareem isn't figuring out how to maximize his talent. Cause that's going to happen anyway. It's how do you get the people around him that need to stay happy and engaged despite not being consistently involved offensively Mm -hmm. to stay bought in right so that Um, they do all the other things like guard and rebound and and, communicate and just just like not bitch like we've both been on basketball teams before me for four less years than you right but Mm -hmm. still like we like like you know when people are just unhappy because they think like team leaders are just being unjust and they stop like showing up on time or whatever it is right like it just puts an energy drain on the culture because instead of focusing on like tactics or strategy, like you have to figure out as a coach how to get people where you're going on time, whatever it may be, right? Mm-hmm. Like just figuring out how to keep the team a well-oiled and well-functioning like organism um, it, it is like the big thing, right? So I think the Steve Nash project is probably like getting the bottom of the roster to really buy in despite not only having like two unbelievable basketball talents but two really mercurial enigmatic guys you know yeah who i i think that's a really good point of getting the rest of the roster to to buy in because we see this all the time right it's jordan and the bulls it's lebron and the Cavs. it's these the heatles and everybody else you know and it's a lot of it is you know building the 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 team around those guys. So it's guys who don't need the ball a lot or who can sacrifice and, and all that stuff. But it's also, as you said, getting the rest of the roster to, to buy into like, look, you're going to get fewer touches. You're going to, we're going to ask you to do more of the dirty work that you may not want to do because it doesn't look as good in the box score. Right. But this is what's going to help us win. I think it will be really interesting too. also with Nash is, because we saw this with the Clippers, that was a big problem with with those passes with Doc Rivers is load management, and oh God. because the because the Clippers roster really struggled with dealing with the fact that Kawhi was able to do things and kind of not pick and choose when he could play, but he got more off days than the rest of the roster. And I'm a believer that if Kawhi says that he's hurt. And that he, uh, like, if he plays, he he only needs to play sixty games, or he can only play sixty games, so he's peak ready to go in the playoffs. I believe him. Like, there, you know, I'm not Kawhi. I don't know how his body's feeling, but especially because of Durant's injury, they've been said, and, and they did it 
so far in the first two weeks is they're, they're going to rest him on back-to-backs. He's only played one of those two games. So how does the rest of the roster respond to that? How do they deal with it? And also, the Eastern Conference at the top is pretty good. It's, it's, pretty, uh, it's pretty good with Boston, Milwaukee, Miami, Philly, the Tampa Bay Raptors this year, that they, they could be in a challenge where it's, hey, we're on a back-to-back. And we're in a playoff push for a different seating or home or whatever. But it's a back-to-back and we're going to rest KD. Like, how does the team handle it? How does, one, how does Durant handle it? But how does the how does the rest of the team handle it? And also just Kyrie and Durant have had a bunch of injuries. Kyrie, you know, people focus so much on Durant's injury and, and his return. Kyrie had shoulder surgery last year, only played about 20 games, had major shoulder surgery. He's coming back too. He may need some a couple of days off that that the team gives him so that he's in peak performance, ready to go for the playoffs as well. I think that whole issue of, or not issue, but just the topic of load management as well, also makes this just a really really interesting team, and just more stuff for the coaching staff and the players to deal with. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all that on top of the fact that like. And this is no small matter. There, there's been an unyielding storm of trade rumors um, surrounding every single person on the team. Um, And I don't know whether trade rumors, um, like how they affect the morale or the focus of the people who are involved. But I can't imagine it's all gravy, right? Like I can't imagine like Karis LeVert is like checking Twitter every day, and half of his mentions are like. I heard today that Shams reported today that like Karis LeVert is being floated as like the centerpiece of like a Bradley Beal trade for the Nets, right? Mm-hmm. Um, to get that third star, and I feel like I don't know. I just feel like that can't be pleasant, right? Like no, because because it's like he makes a shot. Everyone's like he's great. We're going to keep him. We don't need him. Like like we don't need the that third star. And if he starts a game 0 for 3, it's like, why don't we have James Harden? <laughs> I know. And it's there. And I think that's kind of, well, actually, I, before I touch that, because I I do have thoughts on that, I, there's one part about the Nets that I we haven't gotten to that I think is really interesting that isn't like a tactical thing or a basketball thing, but okay. I think is fascinating nonetheless. Um, nobody in New York cares. I, uh, do you do you know, or at least to my knowledge, do you know anybody that's excited about the Nets? Oh, uh, th- there are people who are excited. I, I definitely know a few people who are excited about the Nets being good. But New York is a front-running city, and we will root for and care about whoever is good. So if the Nets are really in contention, deep for a playoff run and for a championship. The city will, will care. I'm not too worried about it. It won't be the same as if the Knicks were in deep in the playoffs. But I think people people will definitely care. If, if the Nets have a chance to win a championship, New York will care. I I actually disagree with that. Um, okay. I, I think New York will look at it like, oh, that's cute, and then move on. Um, because I buy, I buy the Simmons-Clippers theory. Uh, being that the Nets are at such a cultural and generational disadvantage in terms of like fandom um, in New York, that there is no conceivable way um, outside of swinging 
the small portion of like true frontrunners, like not people that like give lip service to frontrunning, but that truly don't have an allegiance, right? Outside of that small portion, I don't think you can overstate how few people in Brooklyn, let alone in New York as a whole, really feel an allegiance to the Nets. And here's how, the metric that I'm using. This is by no means scientific or reliable. So say what you want about this. I look at Instagram, right? And we have a lot of people that we played basketball with in New York who are up to date and care a lot about New York basketball. Or that grew up in Brooklyn because we went to high school in Brooklyn um, that are huge basketball fans, right? And in just generally, whenever something happens with a sports team that they care about, usually you'll see some posts like, oh, yeah, look at my man Danny Dimes. Like, it's the future. Like, Gi- Giants, where are the next Super Bowls? Like, whatever, right? Um, I've never seen a single post like that for the, for the Nets, despite – KD and Kyrie getting an unfathomable amount of traction on pages like House of Highlights and Sports Center, right? And the contrast I use for this is you look at the Knicks, who are an abomination as we covered and in depth. They played one preseason game. Obi Toppin hit like a face up like twelve footer, and I had like six posts on my feed like he's the next Sean Kemp. Don't at me, right? Like. <laughs> Like, people are starved for any drop of a Knicks, like, any ray of a potential uh, of potential sunshine for the Knicks. And they, like, post about it and they talk about it. And the Nets is just, like, crickets. And maybe that's just because we grew up in New York and we're, like, of the ho- homegrown generation. So, obviously, our social circles will skew Knicks fans because – People that grew up in New York are typically people who grew up with the Knicks, right? The Knicks just got there. But, like, I I have never seen an excited Nets po- uh, post in my life outside of one person from high school who I unfollowed a while ago. Uh, I think it's who I, who I don't think is worth talking about. I, th- I think it's because they just haven't been here that long. And while they've been here, they haven't been that exciting. They haven't been that good. So I don't. They've always been better than the Knicks, though. They were just as bad when they were rebuilding when they didn't have those picks with, with Boston, right? They were just as, quote-unquote, hopeless. They made the eight seed once, but they were at the bottom. Like People forget that the Nets got the number one pick that was the Markel Fultz draft that went to Boston. So that's, the, the Nets, in theory, could have drafted Jason Tatum, but they that was a part of the trade for... Garnett and Pierce and Jason Terry. So, and it was also because last year, what was there to be excited about? Durant was out the whole season. Then the pandemic hit. He was still going to be out in the bubble. Kyrie didn't play in the bubble because he also got hurt. So I think the real test will be this season. Is there any juice or excitement? I I don't know. I think D'Angelo Russell, is somebody that could have vibed with New York. I feel like he's the handles shifty guard that like New York vibes with, you know, that like New York, uh, like the type of AAU guard that New York produces like 8 million of. Right. Right. But right. But he only played one season with, with the Nets and and yes, he made the all-star team. But if you're trying to build a fan base, you need to have that guy on the team for several years. He was really only on the he he was he was on the team because he got traded in before the 2017 draft. So he played the 2017 2018 season, 
And so he played like two years with, with the Nets. And they made the playoffs his second year where, when he was an all-star. But then they traded him to Golden State as a part of the, the Durant deal. So there wasn't even a chance really for him to consistently make an all-star team to become this like the best guard and become a real New York uh, guy, right? Yeah, no, I, I, and I definitely buy that. So, uh, all right, I'll, I'll, buy, I'll buy what you're saying. I'll, I'll buy that there hasn't been enough consistent quality yet. I, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. Look, if, if they're the one seed in the East by All-Star Weekend, if there's even an All-Star game this year, they'll oh be yeah. they'll be excitement, right? Uh, but if they're the five seed because they're playing for the playoffs, there probably won't be that much excitement until the playoffs. So... Uh, it'll, it'll be interesting, Matt. I know that we've talked for a while. Do you have any, the last thing I want to say is, do you have any new year's plans in this pandemic 2020 world? All right. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, uh, well, the answer to that question is no, um, <laughs> I, 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 not, not because I, I, I just don't take holidays seriously. I, I just think we're the same. Hot take, day. hot take. Well, you I, wait till the I, hour I, I, 25 no, mark. Me personally, I'm not saying others should. I just personally think we're the same as any other day and I try and live every day to be my best. Right. Um, so I'm not doing anything. I didn't do anything different for Christmas. I, and the only day I'm going to do something different for, uh, I, I don't know. Point being, um, I do have, because in the outline, you sent me um, favorite players to watch. Okay, um, okay. And I, I have a speed round. Although we can hit we that. We definitely don't have to do it because we've gone long. No, no. I have a speed if it's five-minute speed round. Okay. So, uh, well, there, there are five five different players on the list. Um, number one is Split, uh, Markel Fultz and D-Rose. Um, oh. Yikes! I almost dropped my phone. So, uh, so Fultz and and Rose are Fultz number one. Yeah, because you know, um, given that we played an almost uncountable number of two K games, since you love we grade, you love D Rose. Um, well, no, there's nothing I love more in a basketball player than the archetype of like the really athletic slasher um, who does awesome dunks and crazy finishes. Yeah. Um, and awesome, really mobile with great court vision and great feel for the game, right? Like, that's my favorite archetype. And on top of that, I love the comeback story, but the story of resilience um, and overcoming, like, personal demons and challenges, right? Like, all that uh-huh. sappy stuff. Yeah. It, so, and they both fit that archetype. Um, so, Markel and D-Rose, number one. No doubt. Um, okay. Number two... Duncan Robinson, I think he's holding it down for tennis recruits all over the NESCAC. Um, <laughs> is that not true, though? Like, I think it's awesome. He's Look, he's he's awesome. He's, he's an incredible story. He's he's more than an incredible story. He's a really, really good basketball player. And I think yeah. and I think now that he's in, this is year three for him in, in the NBA, but year two of really being uh, solid, uh uh, always in the NBA, not going back and forth between Sioux Falls and and the G League team is. I personally want the narrative to, to to change around him to not that like every time that he goes five for eight in the first half of some game, it's like started at D three Williams College instead of just like no, this dude is one of the best shooters on the planet. Like I, I, I'm I, waiting for that narrative to 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 change to die out. Yeah. I mean, both can be true. Um, to me, 
I love watching him like skirt around um, eight different screens. Um, and it, because I, one thing that got drilled into my he- head, even though I wasn't a shooter, as you know, or at least my gifts were too bad to ever be an actual shooter, right? Um, was to always have your hands ready. And I uh-huh. just watch his hands and his footwork, and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, this guy is freaking like, <laughs> good. Um, and he's good at what. So, Duncan Robinson, shout out you. Um, Number three. Marcus Smart. Um, quick, not because I think his offensive game is pretty at all. Um, I, he just embodies the spirit of joy uh, for joy for the game, uh, or at least from the game, um, an intensity that I wish everyone in the NBA um, took to their craft. First of um, all, and- first of all, it's not Marcus Smart. It's Marcus Smart, okay? <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, <laughs> That's how they call it in that's what they call them in in Boston or the whole New England region. So yeah, so Marcus. Um, I, I, I live in New England, so I, I hope I can nail that accent. But anyway, Marcus is uh, awesome. <laughs> number four. Um, so that's number three. Number four is uh, Giannis. Um, I, I, as you know, Giannis was one of my early favorites. Yeah, um, you just like picked him just because of his name. It felt like when when he got drafted, and you were like, "This dude is incredible." And then he did some dunk with taking one step from half court, and you're like, "This dude is an alien." And then so it, you were proven right. It, it, it wasn't even it wasn't even that because as you know, like I was watching uh, Giannis highlights with Eddie Hayes in Latin class. Yes. when he was a rookie, right? Um, it was that block on Katie where he basically just volleyball spikes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that really solidified it for me. But I, I just thought he had a great feel for the game. But the reason I love watching him now, besides all the obvious things, um, is that I, he, he looks like um, if like the player that a six-year-old would create in 2K. Yeah. Uh, that's like way too big and proportionally just like ridiculous compared to like everyone he's surrounded by that the six-year-old thinks is really funny. But that actually ends up, like, for whatever reason, working as a basketball player and just dominating, like, in almost a silly way. He's an incredible um, player. I, well, I just watch him physically, and I'm just like, those, like, I don't know where they found you. I, I, <laughs> if they're going to recreate you, then this world, this species, is, like, about to take a step forward. Right, you know? right. Yeah, for sure. Now, so, number five. Most important, um, I I think both um, in terms of I, I guess historical significance and personal affection. Uh, LeBron James. Um, people, I, I think people are always think it's fun to think about what is going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, like Zach Lowe said, his most listened to podcast ever is. Um, the emergency pod he did following the Kawhi and Paul George transactions um, to the Clippers. Yeah. At, which makes the point that people like thinking about what could happen more than they like actually like enjoying what is happening, right? Because if people actually enjoyed the present as much as they enjoyed thinking about the future, then the most listened to podcast would have been like, I don't know, like a post-mortem on the first round um, of the Clippers in the bubble, right? Because mm. then you would actually, right? So... I think people, or not even I think, it seems like people like thinking about things in the future. I always try and make an effort to stay as present as possible and enjoy things as much as possible. And how successful I am at that, who knows. Um, But I at least try. 
And I just feel like LeBron is the embodiment right now of why are you looking for the next thing? Like, we have the thing here. Yes. He's, he is so... Look, look. He's the best basketball player of all time. And... It, it, it's ridiculous. And... <laughs> and and if you don't buy it, that's fine. You know, Michael Jordan is also it's basically him and Jordan and Kareem are like the three people. Um when LeBron ends his career, barring any major injuries, he's gonna be the all time leading scorer and basically in the top five of every other major statistical category and probably make a couple more finals. So even though he's four four ten in in the finals he still has made 10 finals and that has to mean something including eight in a row. Um, LeBron's the best basketball player of all time. And it's also, there's no overstating. I've said that a lot this podcast, but you can't exaggerate how good of a human he is as well. Like he's the best basketball player and has sans the decision, which is a mistake that everyone, um, it was also a mistake that raised like, Hundreds of thousands of dollars for, for sure, the Boys right? and Girls Club so, of America. As far as mistakes go, okay, right? Like, that's your worst. Like, yeah. you raised millions of dollars for charity, right? But anyway, he's just the almost per- – he's as good of a human off the court as you can hope somebody to be from youth all the way up through now. And I just feel like you're never going to get a comedy – or if you will, it's going to be another once-in-a-lifetime guy like that. Like, we have it here. He's the career we all expected from him yeah. and more. He is the best we could thing we could ask for on and off the court, and he's still freaking doing it. Look after look, eighteen years. He was he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated as a junior in high school, where the theme of the article was this guy is the next Michael Jordan. He's the next he's he, th- this guy's gonna be the best basketball player of all time. And I, and the crazy part is He's turned out to be the best basketball player of all time. Oh, and he has been even better than we could have imagined yes. in a lot of ways, right? I think Dave Chappelle put it best in 846. This man was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, as you said, as a junior in high school. And he exceeded every single expectation that we set for him at mm-hmm. that point. We anointed him to stay here, and he has exceeded that. Yeah. Um, and I'm just trying to enjoy it, you know? Yeah. We have it here. It's still freaking going on against all odds. And I'm just looking at it like, wow, what the absolute F. I, I, I'm just happy that it's here, it's still going, and that I can sit down, watch highlights, and be like, Jesus freaking Christ, you want to talk about aliens, this is one right here. Um, so so th- that's my number five. So the one glaring omission to your top five is Luka Doncic. He will be there. <laughs> yeah. he, he's close. He's my pick for MVP this season. Um, he didn't play well last night, but I digress. Uh, he's okay. he's incredible to watch. He he was my favorite player to watch in the, in in the whole bubble. He's one of my favorite players in the entire NBA. I was trying to tell you, James Graham, Josh, anyone who would who would listen when coming out of the draft that Luka Doncic should be the number one pick. He was special. This dude is just incredible. I I try to tell everyone. Um. And it's going to sound like I'm just cherry picking my rights and wrongs. I I own up to when I'm wrong on this podcast a lot, but I was right about Luca. I, I don't think there's any stressing, um, the, like the fact that he's younger than us. Like my, yes. my big my big dilemma this morning was like, 
what type of apple should I have with like my granola for breakfast? And I'm <laughs> sure I got that question right. And he's younger than us, and he's against the best, the best people in the world in his field, absolutely shining and exceeding. Like he's just dominating people. Like. I, like, like, well, as a 21-year-old, like, what? He dominated... He's that good at something. He dominated yeah. the, the Clippers in the playoff series, even though they lost in six games. He he was incredible. And he was 20. He yeah. He was 20 years old. Like I said, I could barely pick the type of apple I wanted. I was between, like, Red Delicious or, like, freaking <laughs> whatever, right? Like, I couldn't even pick that right. And Luka Doncic is, like, giving Kawhi Leonard, who is, by all accounts, one of the three best perimeter defenders of all time, the 30. Like, what? Yeah, he's <laughs> he's incredible. Matt, always a pleasure. Thank you for taking so much of your time out of your day today to join us on the Double Double Wishing you a very happy New Year's, and uh, thanks for coming on, buddy. It's my pleasure. That'll do it for this episode of The Double Double. If you like this podcast, you can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever your podcast, and you can subscribe, rate, and review. Five stars would be much, much appreciated. Let's follow us on Twitter at DBL underscore DBL podcast. We'll be back later this week. Take care, and make it a great day. <laughs>